0: along on there as well. Uh, if you've not logged into it before, uh, when you go on the UVersion Bible app on the bottom screen where it says more, you can click on that, click events, and uh, if it doesn't pop up, you can type in Cornerstone, no and it should be uh, ready to go. But uh, as JP kind of hinted at uh, in his meditation, uh, we are starting a new series this morning, in the book of Numbers, and you know, JP did joke around with me Wednesday night. He's like, "Numbers, like you can—it's just names and number. You can you can move on in that." And I—I I feel like a lot of times we kind of have that view when it comes to numbers. Like it's—it's it's numbers and it's list. And I don't know about you, I don't like math, like at all. And uh, but you know, it's kind of got this. Uh, and there's it's hard to understand it's hard to read but really the book of numbers has a lot of important stuff in it a lot of important events that take place and so before we get into our text i kind of want to give a snapshot of the book of numbers The book of Numbers, it's widely believed to be written by Moses. There are some who say maybe there was a different author, but most people believe it was written by Moses. And most of the events that we find in the book, it takes place between year two and year 40 of the wilderness wandering of the Israelites. Chapters one through 25, it deals with this first generation, while the rest of the book deals with the new generation. And the book of Numbers, it finds its name to us due to the census that we will see at the beginning and at the end. And kind of in the middle, we have a couple of different uh, censuses that take place. And uh, the thing is, though, that's not really what this is about. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew title for the book is actually In the Wilderness, because so much of it takes place in the wilderness, and you see in Romans chapter eleven, twenty-two, Paul says the following. He says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And really, this is a snapshot of the book of Numbers. In Numbers, we see the goodness of God, we see the grace of God, we see the holiness and the righteousness of God, but yet we also see the severity of God. God is big and powerful, and you know he's, he's a good God, he's a gracious God, but he can also be a God of wrath. He can be a God who is, shows his discipline in strong ways. And really, if you take the book of Exodus, you take the latter part of the book of Exodus after they cross the Red Sea, if you recall what happens to the Israelites after the crossing of the Red Sea, they start to grumble, they start to complain, they start to long for Egypt because life was better in Egypt, we didn't have to worry about this. Now, you take that and you put that side by side with numbers, you find the exact same things, groaning, complaining, longing for Egypt, all on display. As a matter of fact, in First Corinthians chapter ten, verses one through six, we kind of get this example of what not to do. In verses one through six in First Corinthians ten, it says, "For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses." in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so we have this example for us to follow in the in the opposite direction do not do what they did and you see we see a lot of big important stuff in the book of numbers and we're not going to cover all of the book of numbers so I would encourage you read through the book of numbers I know there's lists and there's numbers and peoples but there's a lot of things that take place so I would encourage you to read through the book of numbers as we go through it but this morning we start at the beginning with preparation And really, that's kind of the idea of the book of Numbers. It's preparation for promise. As God is going to start leading his people into the promised land, there's this time of preparation. And at the beginning of the book of Numbers, we start with a task. We start with a task that is given to a group of people. It's an important task. It's a uh, significant task. And it's a task that sets the tone Not just for the book of Numbers, not just for the nation of Israel, but even for us today. And it makes us ask the question, what is at the center of our lives? Who is at the center of our lives? And so we're going to start in Numbers chapter 1, verse 47. And it says this, it says, But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. And you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levite shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levite shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, and they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. And so, In order to really understand our text this morning, we need to understand the context of chapter one. And at the beginning of chapter one, we see God instruct Moses to take a census. In Numbers chapter one, verses one through four, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai and the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel By clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each his tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers." and you see the point of this census is really this it's to count those men who would be able to go to battle who would be able to go to war and you see this refrain in chapter one several times every man able to go to war you see god wanted these people to be prepared he wanted them to be ready there was going to be battle and Yes, God was going to lead them into the promised land, but there would be battle. There would be war along the way, and he had to make sure the people were ready to fight. But we see one tribe is not to be counted, and that is the Levites. They're not counted because they have a specific purpose, a specific task that would exempt them from military service. And so the question is at first, who are the Levites? Who are the Levites? Why is that name familiar? Who are these people? Well, the Levites are a tribe named after Levi, and Levi being one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he was known for violence. Genesis chapter 49, 5 through 7, it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel my glory be not join to their company for in their anger they killed men and in their wilfulness they hamstrung oxen cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel i will divide them in jacob and scatter them in israel and so at first you may be wondering why in the world then are they responsible for this task in watching the tabernacle well it was their ferocity in a moment of right cause that really set them apart after the golden calf fiasco they were ready to put down even their own kin because of their or because of their idol worship we see this in exodus 32 25 through 29 it says and when moses saw that the people had broken loose for aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And so these Levites are given a task that will exempt them from military service. So, what is this task? Well, the task that they had was to be over the tabernacle of the testimony. What does this mean, tabernacle of the testimony? Well, this is referring to the tablets of testimony, which we read about in Exodus 34, verse 29, where it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And so they are to keep watch. They are to guard. They are to help in the ministry of the tabernacle, they would be responsible for setting up the tabernacle when it needed to be set up. They would be responsible for tearing it down when it needed to be t- or torn down. They would be responsible in carrying it from place to place. And thinking about the book of Numbers later on when they're going through the wilderness, think about this, they're wandering around for you know, all this time, and they're having to take down the tent, put up the tent, take it down, put it up over and over and over again. And they were to guard everything that was in it. That was their responsibility, and this is an important responsibility because verse 51 tells us that any outsider who comes near it would die. Anybody who came to, nor, or towards the tabernacle would die. And the word outsider here, it's referring to anybody who was not a Levite. Anybody who is not a Levite would be uh, put to death because of this. This punishment, it's actually reiterated in later in our text today, but in other parts of Numbers as well. In Numbers 3.38, it says, Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel, and any outsider who came near was to be put to death. In Numbers eighteen seven it says, And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Matter of fact, I like this little note that I read in the New King James Study Bible. and points out God's presence was both a blessing and a curse in the camp. A blessing for those who had a proper sense of awe and respect of the nearness of the deity and a curse for those who had no respect for the divine presence. And so, because of the potential outcomes here, the Levites are to camp around the tabernacle of testimony to make sure that nobody would approach who was not to approach. And the 12 fighting tribes were to camp three by three and circle in the tabernacle, and the Levites were to camp between the fighting tribes and the tabernacle as a buffer between the fighting tribes and the tabernacle. This would help keep God from having to show his wrath on the people. This would remind the people that his holiness should not be forgotten, and that he is to be approached at all times with reverence and awe by those who are allowed And in chapter 2, you see the plan fully in detail of what this would look like. And I think there's a picture on the slide, yeah, of what this would look like. You see, there's order in this. In chapter 1, we see all this order. We see the census. We see all these details. In chapter 2, we see all these details of how things are to be set up. But there's something very important here that God's presence is at the very center of all of this. So now we're gonna fast forward over to Numbers chapter three. Numbers chapter three, and we're gonna look at verses five through ten. And it says this: It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And so, jumping over to chapter 3, we read more about the task that the Levites are given. At the beginning in verse 5, it says, bring the tribe of Levi near. This is a sacrificial term. as though making an offering to God to be used for a specific purpose. And as we know, that specific purpose is to be over the tabernacle. They would guard all the furnishings and they would keep the people from going near who were not supposed to be near so that it wouldn't be defiled and that the people would not experience the wrath of God. But something we see here that is very important is the fact that they would be given over to Aaron, the high priest, to minister to him, to help him with what was needed done as far as watching over the tabernacle, tearing it down and putting it up, and they would be there to to help minister and to help do the things that were needed. But these verses also remind us of the distinction between Aaron and his family and the Levites. Only Aaron and his sons could approach the sanctuary If the Levites would approach, they too would be put to death. You know, only one person was allowed in the Holy of Holies during the Day of Atonement once a year, and that was Aaron. But there's this distinction, there's this reminding of the Levites have this job, but their job is to minister to the priest and to help guard the tabernacle as the priests do what they need to do. And... The Levites again would be put to death if they went where they weren 't supposed to, and God had put this order together and we see an example later in number sixteen of what happens when some of the Levites try to start an uprising because they also desired that priesthood. You can read about that in number sixteen but what 's interesting here is some look at this as a parallel to Acts chapter six in Acts chapter six, we see deacons who were selected to help do the things that were needed so that the apostles could go and they could. Preach and and do the things that they needed to to share the gospel. And we kind of see a a similar thing here. The Levites would function in a similar manner to the deacons here in regard to how they served the priest, how they helped with the priest, the task that they were given. But then we go into verse eleven. Verse eleven, and verse eleven through thirteen it says this And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And so he says, give me the Levites. The Levites are mine. They are going to take the place of the firstborn. And you might be wondering, what does this mean? What is he talking about here? Well, in Exodus 13, 2, God said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. On the night of the Passover, God had claim on the firstborn as his own. But now we are going to see him substitute the Levites for, or for the firstborn. And it doesn't really give us a lot of details on why he makes the switch. It's likely the reason is what we talked about earlier with that moment after the golden calf fiasco, what they do that kind of sets them apart. But there's been some other theories for uh, why he chooses the Levites here. Uh, One uh, website called the Bible says it's really good website says um, it's likely a matter of practicality as it had been the case with God's entire organization of Israel as a nation. This made a clear distinction between the policing function of the Levites who were holy to the Lord from the military function of the other tribes, which would likely minimize the potential for civil war. Any justice meted by the Levites would be considered as coming from the authority of God, avoiding a blood feud. This was the case in two episodes where Levites slew fellow Israelites. Neither of these events started a civil war. Peter Naylor, in his commentary on numbers, also says that this could have helped assist in the transition from a household sacrifice to national worship. During patriarchal times, the head of the house would act as family priest and would make sacrifice. An example of this is Noah in Genesis 8.20. It says, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. After this, maybe their son would become next in line, but now that we see Israel as a nation, some celebrations would continue in the home, but there was now a unified, organized structure. For whatever reason, we know that God is choosing the Levites, and this is implemented in chapter 3, verses 40 through 51. And so they have this task. God gives them this task. You are to guard the tabernacle. You are to help set it up. You are to help tear it down. You are to help carry it. But there is this distinction. They were not able to carry, hold any of the things inside that was reserved for the priest, but they had this job of helping carry things around and take things around and setting things up and to guard it, to protect it, to make sure people didn't get near who weren't supposed to. And you see this task of the Levites it really stands out to me because it's it's an important task. You know to help minister to the priest to help with what was needed and really to protect what was really important and I can see a lesson for us in this. I think we're all called to protect what is important. Are we protecting the truth? Are we protecting the truth or protecting the word that we know is truth? Are we protecting the church? And the reason I ask that is because it seems like so many churches today are being influenced by the world around us, all for the sake of being seeker-friendly. And yet, so many things from the world are starting to infiltrate the church. You can see videos and posts of all these crazy things that are happening in the church where it seems like the gospel is leaving. Are we protecting the church? Are we protecting the Word. So many people are being influenced by the world rather than the Word because the truth is we don't really actually know the Word. We don't read the Word. We don't study the Word. We don't apply the Word. In some cases, what we get on Sundays or Wednesdays are the most we get. And so this is a challenge to us. Teachers, leaders, are we protecting what has been entrusted to us? And I know Wednesday nights we take very seriously what we do. We take very seriously teaching the word of God to the children who have been entrusted to us because we know that they need the truth that we have. God's word is truth and they need to hear the truth because there are so many voices trying to get into their head and they need to know what the word says. And so we take that seriously. What about at home? Are you protecting your families? Are you protecting the families that have been entrusted to you? Men, are you protecting your families, your marriage, or your kids? Are you studying the word of God and learning the truth together so that when the world comes in and tries to sway you, you know what the word actually says? And the Levites had this important task of protect what was important, to protect what was sacred, to protect what was so important that you know, God was at the center, and they were to protect this tabernacle. Are we protecting the truth? Are we protecting what is true? Are we protecting our churches? Are we making sure that the world is not infiltrating and turning it in to something it's not supposed to be? But I think for our text this morning, I think there's something that really stands out to me You see, I think the reason that God set up this order, the way that he put things in its place, the way he appointed the Levites for this very specific task, the way he set up his camp, the way that the tabernacle was at the center, the way that the people, the way they were organized around it, I think it shows us something very, very important. I think the beginning of the book of Numbers shows us that God must be at the center God must be at the center of everything. For the nation of Israel, God had to be at the center, God in their midst, in their presence. If God was out, look at all the things that would begin to happen to the people. Enemies around them would attack. God turning, his we talked about this last week, God turning his face away from the people. Imagine what happens if God is not at the center of the nation of Israel Everything at the beginning of Numbers is built around the idea that God was at the very center. Worship of God was at the very center. The way the camp was arranged with the tabernacle at the center. The way the Levites and the priests were to camp close to it. God at the center. But look what happens when the people don't have God placed at the center. They start to complain. They start to lack trust and they start to doubt. It cost a whole generation an opportunity into the promised land. Even our Levites find themselves messing up. And I think this truth is one that stands out for us today. We must make sure that God is at the center of our lives. We have to make sure that God is at the center of our lives. He's the center of our worship. He is at the center of everything that we say and do. God at the center. And yet, more often than we care to admit, God is not in the center. God is kind of on the side. God is on the peripherals. Like, like we know he's there, but he's not really the first person we consult. He's not the first person that we pray to. He's not the first person we go to for advice. He's just kind of on the outside looking in. And sometimes he's not really on the side at all. We push him so far away... Is the last thing on our mind. And so, for just a few minutes, I want us to talk about what's the consequence of this. What is the consequence in our lives if we start to remove God from the center of our lives, if we start to put him to the side, if we start to remove him from the equation, what begins to happen when God is not the center of our life, not the center of our worship, not the center of everything we do? What happens? Well, I think one of the things that happens is we begin to conform. We begin to compromise to the world. One of the biggest consequences of removing God from the center of our lives is that it opens the door for compromise with the world and that is dangerous. Scripture warns us not to conform to the world. Romans 12:2 it says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the, is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. In 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James 4.4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And when we start to remove God from the center of our lives, we start to compromise. We start to conform to those around us. And I know what you may be thinking. You're like, yeah, I... I go to work with people who are not believers. Am I supposed to just avoid them and not talk with them? What am I supposed to do? I have family members who are not believers. What am I Do I just ignore them? I don't think you just ignore them. But here's the thing. If you start to push God out of the center of your life, if you start to let the outside influence you, you start to conform. You start to compromise. And we start to take God out of the center how do, we, how do we do this? How do we conform? How do we compromise? I think sometimes we just choose the wrong relationships. We choose to live life with people who are so consumed by the world. And when God's not at the center of our lives, we start to accept opinions and beliefs that we know are not true. We don't test them. We start to accept those things. We start to accept worldly advice from people who are not believers without questioning it. And we don't want to be labeled wrong or looked at wrong by the world. And so we embrace what we know is sin to appease the people around us. It's more common than we would like to admit or believe. And so, yes, we live in this world. We work with coworkers who don't believe. We can talk with them. We can live life with them. But are we going to go and start doing the things that they're doing? If we start to remove God from the center of our lives that starts to become more and more of an option. And that leads us to another consequence. I think when we start to remove God from the center of our lives, sin starts to become more enticing. Sin starts to become more enticing. In Proverbs sixteen six it tells us, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And because we know that this is true, then it would stand to reason that if we remove God from the equation, we start to turn towards sin instead of away from it. We start to let the sinful nature in us take its foothold in our life. And here's the truth. We know this to be true. We have an enemy who's a liar, don't we? We have an enemy who's a liar. That's in his description. In John 8, 44, Jesus says, You are the father of the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who he is. Our enemy is a liar. And here's the thing. Our enemy is sneaky. He's sneaky, and he's subtle. And how he tempts, he's sneaky and he's subtle and, and how he, he lies. Think about his first appearance in Genesis. In Genesis 3, 1 through 5, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? This subtlety in this lie. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. He knows that once you eat this, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be just like him and he'll be jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him. He says you're not going to die, but guess what? It brings death. This lie brings death. When they take from this fruit and they eat this fruit, it brings death death. He's subtle. He's subtle in how he whispers in our ears. If you do this, it will help take the edge off. If you do this, you will feel better. Surely, surely, God doesn't mind if you do this one thing. He wants you to be happy, doesn't he? Oh, and he, he would go on to tempt Jesus. Paul would warn us, too, of this slyness. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And our enemy is sneaky and subtle. And so what do we do? Well... We make sure that God is at the center of our lives. We listen to him. We obey him. We submit to him. We follow his words, his teaching. We do what the word of God says. We listen to James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to the word of God. We submit ourselves to prayer. And we make him the center of our lives. But the strength that is given us by God through prayer, by knowing the word and living it out. I think there's another consequence, though, too, is we, when we start to push God out of the center of our lives, oftentimes we replace him with something, don't we? Like we we take God out of the center of our lives and, and we replace God at the center of our lives with idols that take the place of the worship that should go to him. And there are so many different idols. The possessions that we own become things that we obsess about. The money that we make becomes things that we obsess about. Sex is an idol in our world today. And what about people What about people? People become an idol in our lives. Sometimes it's our spouse that takes the place of God at the center of our lives. Sometimes it's our boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever that takes the place of God at the center of our lives. There are so many things that we replace God with at the center of our lives, And we, of course, know that Scripture tells us that God wants all of our worship. He doesn't want part. He doesn't want pieces. He wants all of our worship. He wants us to be committed to Him and to Him alone. That is what we are told, and we are warned not to worship idols. Leviticus 26.1, we talked about this last week. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. 1 John 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so what are those idols that are taking the place of God in our lives? Well, in an article for the Gospel Coalition entitled How to Expose the Idols in Your Life, Joe Carter shares a few areas to examine, and I just thought these were too good not to share. And so here's some of the things that he tells us that we need to examine. The first thing he says is examine your imagination. Examine your imagination. What do you daydream about? When your mind wanders, is it to material goods like fishing boats and exotic vacations? Or is it to intangible items, such as the fame of celebrity or the approval of your peers? He says, examine your attention. Consider the times you would rather be doing something else rather than practicing a spiritual discipline. What activity would you rather be doing instead? Are there one or more time-wasting activities you regularly turn to when to avoid engaging in more productive tasks? He says, examine your finances. Most of us have discretionary or disposable income, money left over after the bills have been paid. How do you spend your disposable income? For what material goods or services are most likely to go into are most likely to go into debt to finance? He says, examine your prayer life. How do you feel when God doesn't respond to your prayers in the way that you wanted? Do you trust that He knows best, or do you become angry and bitter? Has there been unanswered prayers that have made you doubt God's goodness or made you want to turn away from him? He says, examine your relationships. What person do you love the most? What person do you most want to please? Do you have friendships or romantic attachments that lead you away from God? He says, examine your emotions. What do you most fear? What do you most hope for? What are are you the most passionate about? What do you most desire? What makes you extremely angry or sad? He says, examine your concerns. What do you worry about? What makes you most anxious? What do you most fear losing? And he says, examine your past and your future. If you had a time machine and could travel into either the past or the future, what would you use to change? What makes you nostalgic? What are your biggest regrets? What do you most want to happen in the future? What would cause you to despair if it didn't come to pass? Using these, we can look and we can check ourselves. What are the things that are driving us? What are the things that we worship most? What are the things that we're most passionate about? What are the things that we think about the most? What are the things that we obsess about in our lives? And we can check those things and we can look at those things. And if those things are taking the place of God in our lives, if those things mean more to us than God, then we have an idle problem. And we need to take that out and we need God at the center. And you see, this is just a couple of consequences. There are several consequences of removing God from the center of our lives. There's fear, anxiety, chaos that consumes us when we take God out of the center of our lives. Our relationships start to struggle our friendships, our marriages, our family life starts to struggle when God is removed from the equation, when God is not at the center. Our worship takes a hit when God is not at the center. God needs to be at the center of our lives. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we put God, when we put Christ at the center of our lives, we live for Him because it's no longer us who live, but it is Him who lives in us. When we put God. We put Christ at the center of our lives. We live differently. We act differently. We do life differently because everything we do is run through God. We pray. We seek him and we seek his will in every single thing that we do. We consult him first when there's life decisions to be made. We go to God all the time and our lives are influenced by him. And when we live with him at the center of our lives, we live by his power in whatever circumstance in whatever trials and whatever situations that we are facing, no matter what difficult times we are going through, we live by his strength, by his power. Philippians 4:13 is a verse that I think sometimes gets taken out of context and used carelessly. But in it, he's talking about in all things, in verse Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Paul is saying in whatever situation I am in, whether I have much, whether I have little, whether I am good, whether I am struggling, whatever the case I am in, whatever my situation, I can do all things because the power of God strengthens me. We can live by his power in whatever circumstance, and we can live in this world without fear. We can live in this world without fear when God is at the center of our lives. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Whatever your situation, whatever your trial, if God is at the center of your life, you can rest in his power and his strength, and you can know that you can live in this world without fear because he has overcome the world. And so the question is, is God at the center of our lives? Is he at the center of everything we do? Is he the most important person in our world, or are we just pushing him to the side? Are we pushing them to the side? Are we pushing them out of the boundary of our lives? Are we trying to do everything on our own? Are we trying to listen to what the world says around us? Are we trying to do things because we think that we can control our lives? Or are we letting God be the center? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as they do, maybe you are here this morning, and you've never put God at the center You've never given your life to him. He's never, you can't say that he's been out of him because he's, you've never asked him to come and be the center in your life. Well, here's the good news this morning. You can give your life to him this morning. You can put your faith and trust in him this morning. You can believe on him this morning and you can put him at the center of your life because of the work of Christ on the cross the finished work of Christ on the cross, the blood that was shed, the body that was broken, the body that was put in the grave and three days later rose again because of the work of Christ. You can put your faith in him. You can believe in him. You can live for him. You can put him in the center. And so if that's you this morning, maybe you've never given your life to him. You can this morning. And the connect cards around you, you can fill that out. I would love to talk with you If you want to come up here and talk with me, I'd love to talk with you. Our elders would love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've just, maybe you've given your life to him, but the enemy has just started to kind of help you push God out of the center. He's crafty, he's subtle, maybe he's been keeping you busy. Your mind on everything but God. Your life focused on everything but God. And the enemy is starting to push out God from the center of your life. Well, this morning, maybe you're here and you're seeing the results of that. Man, I'm starting to feel more and more like I'm compromising, like I'm conforming to the people around me, and I'm starting to forget that God needs to be at the center. Maybe those things that you know, man, I I need to avoid these things, these, these things that entice me, these sins that are around me, I'm starting to feel the weight of that, and I'm starting to see that Maybe God's not at the center. And maybe this morning you're here and you can feel the way and you can see the results in your life. Maybe it's all these other things that are starting to take the place in the center of your life. These idols, these things that are given more worship, more time, more obsession than we give God. And this morning, you can put God back where he belongs, right at the center, right at the center of your life. And so if you need to this morning, right where you're sitting, you can pray. And you can make sure God is back at the center of your life. You can lay all of those things at his feet. If you need to, you can come up here and pray. I'd love to pray with you. Anybody would probably love to pray with you. This morning, the question is this. Is God at the center? Is he at the center of our lives? Is he at the center of everything we do? Is he at the center of our worship? Or is it something else? Is it someone else? God belongs in the center. If you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to follow him, I pray that you do so. If you're here this morning and you need to spend time in prayer, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing this morning.